0: Chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, Jesus Christ is warning his disciples of the sin of offending the brethren. The sin of offending the brethren is a word or deed that causes a brother or sister to fall into sin or be a stumbling block to their faith. Christ is clear on the greatness and seriousness of the sin. He says to the disciples, if anyone offends one of these little ones, it would be better for them that a millstone was tied around their necks, taken to the middle of the sea, kicked off the boat, and suffer an agonizing death through Drowning. But as we explained this, we also gave three clarifications. The first was to do with the visible church. True disciples have grace, love the brethren, and will deal with their sin. False disciples do not love the brethren, they will have this sin. And God will judge the false disciples. The second clarification was to do with repentance. This is not the unpardonable sin. And one may commit this sin and repent for the full forgiveness of the sin. Praise be to God. But all who repent will live in new obedience evidenced by killing that Sin. And thirdly, Christ is giving a gospel threat. In the gospel, there are threatenings that warn us of sin, and these are means of grace so that the true believers take heed, listen to the warning, and obey the living God. And so having established the greatness and the seriousness of the sin of offending... We can now ask ourselves, how can I, a believer in Jesus Christ, overcome the sin of offending? And Jesus Christ gives us two answers in verses 43 to 50. First of all, he says, cut the sin of offence out of your life. Verse 43 to forty-eight, And then secondly, season your life with the salt of peace, verses 49 to 50. So how are we to overcome the sin of offending the brethren? First of all, cut the sin of offense out of your life. And we see the exhortation, the warning, the urging of Jesus Christ. Verse 43, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. 45, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. 47, if thine hand offend thee, pluck it out. And from these verses, we may glean four practical lessons to overcome the sin of offending the brethren. And the first lesson is this, cut out Personal sin. Christ does not say, do not sin the offense against one of these little ones. Therefore, stop doing what you're doing. Stop offending others. He goes to the root of the problem here. He says, cut out your own personal offense. That's the language. If your hand is causing you to offend. If your eye is causing you to offend. If your foot is causing you to offend. He's speaking about the personal offense. And the reason is this. If there's something in your life which is a snare to you sinning and someone else sees it because you're sinning, you're going to lead them into sin. Or if there's a stumbling block in your own life which is harming your own faith and someone else sees it, they may be led to be a stumbling block in their own faith. And therefore, to cut out the sin of offending others, you need to cut out personal offense against yourself. Matthew Henry comments, This must begin at home. If we must take heed of doing anything to hinder others from good and to occasion their sin, much more careful must we be to avoid everything we, that will take us off from our duty or lead us to sin. And that which doth so must part with, though it ever be so dear to us. So if you're not going to offend the brethren, you need to cut out your own personal offenses which are leading you to sin, which others see and follow. The things in your life which are a stumbling block to your faith, which others see and and follow so look within what is the snare in your own life leading you to sin what is the stumbling block in your own life which is leading your faith to be harmed and hampered Or in the language of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, where it speaks of the sin which besets us and the things that weigh us down. So what is your besetting sin that another may see and fall into the same? What are the things that are weighing you down and others are seeing and following you? Is it something lawful or unlawful? Is it something good or evil? You start to kill the sin of offending the brethren when you look to yourself and you cut out personal offences. Which leads us secondly, cut out particular offences. Christ is no generic here. He's not just saying, cut out offenses in your life. He's particular. If your hand is a snare causing you to sin, if your hand is a stumbling block weakening your faith, cut that off. But maybe it's not your hand. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your eye as a snare leading you to sin. Pluck it out. Or maybe the eye is a stumbling block weakening your face. Pluck it out. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe your problem is the foot. Is that a snare leading you to sin? Cut it off. Or maybe it's a stumbling block weakening your own faith. Cut it off. Christ is particular. And he's using this language because the Bible speaks of the members of the body as the evidence, the outward of sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 13. Neither yield ye your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Then again verse 19. Ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, And to iniquity unto iniquity. And so here it's speaking about the externals, the actions, the deeds of sin. And so if your hand is a member of unrighteousness, cut it off. If your eye is a member of unrighteousness, pluck it out. And if your foot is the member of unrighteousness, cut it off. This means. There will be particular sins or particular things in your life that are leading others into sin or hurting their faith. And we should emphasize the if here because it's not as if everyone at this moment in time is doing things in their life which is offending others. That's not the case. Lord willing, we're all living good, godly, holy lives and we're faithful, consistent witnesses, that should be the normal. But if, if you are a snare to lead someone into sin, if you are a stumbling block weakening someone else's faith, it's going to be particular. And therefore, what is it for you? Is it pride manifesting itself with the word you say, and that's the stumbling block to another? Is it something like lust or worldliness, hatred, vengeance, a lack of respect to another person's conscience? Is it something you do? Is it something you say? Are you failing to abstain in something that you should? It's going to be different for different people on different occasions. But when you do lead another into sin or hurt their faith, it's because there's a particular sin and offense in your life. So you have to look for it. You have to know what it is. If you don't know what it is, You can't deal with it. You don't deal with it, it's going to lead another one into sin or another person to have their faith weakened. Third step. Cut out your particular offense radically. Radically. Again and again and again, using the language of cut it out, cut it out, pluck it off. The word cut means to remove by amputation. To remove by amputation. If that hand is causing you to sin, what do you do about it? Put a band-aid over it? No. Tie it up? No. Get out the hacksaw. Cut it off. Is that eye causing you to sin? Don't put something over it. Pluck it out. Is your foot causing you to offend? Amputate it. Deal with it. Radically. No papering over the cracks. Not ignoring it. Not thinking it will just end. Radically remove it by amputation. But Christ is not speaking about literal or physical amputation here. He's speaking of spiritual, radical amputation. Sadly, there are people in church history who have taken this literally. They struggled with the sin of lust, and therefore they cut it off. And some people today might have the same idea. Such people do not understand the Bible and they don't understand sin. First and foremost, the Old Testament condemned anyone cutting themselves or amputating certain parts of the body. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 23.1, He that is wounded in the stones or hath his private member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Nothing godly about cutting off members for the purpose of killing sin. And such a person doesn't understand sin. The problem of sin is not what we say. The problem of sin is not what we do. It is inward, it's spiritual, and it's of the heart. James chapter 1 verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived... It bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So where does sin start? The desires of the heart. That's where sin starts. The action is only the fruit and the branch of the root. The root problem of sin is inward. That's why Christ says in Matthew 5, If you got adultery, the heart. Is it murder? The heart. John says in 1 John 3, Where does the murder of Cain start? You hate your brother in your heart. If your hand's causing you to sin, you cut it off, you'll sin with the other hand. If your eye's causing you to sin and you pluck it out, you'll sin with the other eye. You can cut out both eyes, both hands, both feet. Go into a monastery, be surrounded by nothing but prayer in the Bible, and you'll still sin. Wasn't that not Luther's experience? He tried to get himself away from society as a monk. Bible study, Bible meditation, psalm singing, godly, holy, religious things, and yet inside he knew what a sinner he was. So let us not fall into the false and biblical view of externalism and literalism here. Plucking physical things does nothing, 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 nothing. The problem's inward, spiritual, and radical. And so how are we going to radically cut out this sin? It begins with faith in Christ. If you do not have faith in Christ and do not use your faith in Christ, there is no cutting off this sin. Romans chapter 13 verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is like clothing. You're putting it on and you're wearing it. Without faith in Christ... There is no killing sin. You're only under condemnation and the power of sin you are still under. But when you do put on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, as we saw last week, we're delivered from the guilt of sin. We're delivered from the corruption of sin and the bondage of sin. We are delivered. And as Christians, this is the first step to cutting out the sin of offense. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know, if you are committing this sin, there is forgiveness in Christ. Because if you have the idea is, if I do not do this, then I do not earn or merit or deserve forgiveness. It's going to be a weight on your back and you will never have the freedom of killing that sin. But when you know you wear Jesus Christ and his righteousness clothes you, you know that your sin is forgiven in repentance and faith. And it's freedom and liberty upon you. And when you wear Jesus Christ by faith, you have every power and ability because he gives you his Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 13. If ye through the Spirit mortify sin. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Paul, I'm going to tell you believers What you are in Christ. And he uses four words. I want you to know the exceeding power, strength, might, and energy that is within you. You have Christ's resurrection power within you. And you can do all things. And this Christ-sourced power, might, strength, energy that comes from his resurrection is given to us by the Holy Spirit, who moves us and enables us to hate sin, to grow in the gospel, and to obey the living Lord. And if you forget that, you'll feel defeated before you even begin. And with Christ within you, you also now have the weapons of warfare to cut out the sin. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. This is what you do to kill your sin. You have your loins girt about with truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with prayer and supplication in the spirit. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication. These are your weapons in Christ. And when you have this, you make no allowance, no provision for your flesh. And having put on Christ, you now go to the root. Your heart. What is it in your heart that's coming out your mouth or your actions, which another brother or sister sees, which is leading them to sin or their faith to be weakened? Is it that anger, that lust, zeal without knowledge and wisdom? What is it? Is it pride? Is it carelessness? Is it being inconsiderate? Is it just a general spiritual or practical laziness? Is it a worldly desire within your heart? Now you've put on Christ, you go to that heart and you make no provision for it. As John Owen says, what you want to do is strangle it. You do not want to give it the life to live. As the little sparks fly in the heart of lust or anger or pride, you don't allow it any breath. It comes into your thoughts. Immediately the word of God comes to your mind and you say no. Is there a desire to do things or say things? You don't just do it. You stop and say, is it wise? Is it seasonable? will this hurt all build up? And if there's sinful desires and you're strangling it and not allowing them to live, you want good desires to take their place. Instead of pride, you want humility. Instead of lust, you want self-control. Instead of hatred, you want Love. Instead of foolishness, you want wisdom. And through the word and through the prayer, you seek to grow in these graces. So when the flesh arises with the sin desires, you do not even give them an inch. You're aware. As Peter says in other places in the Bible, say you guard up the loins of your mind. You in grace is in control, not your sinful desires. And controlling your desires to not give them life, which are sinful or wrong, and you are allowing the good graces to grow by word and prayer, then you need to cut the branch and the root out. Is your hand the problem? What you're touching, what you're grasping, cut it off. Is your eye the problem? You're lingering and looking. Pluck it out. Is your feet causing you to go places and walk on a certain path? Cut it off. What is it in your life? Is it worldliness? Is it your speech? Is it the things you're talking about? whatever action or fruit or external thing is your life, radically cut it off. Don't give any opportunity for your desires to act out. Do practical things to stop it and cease. If it's with the mouth, learn to speak less and listen more. Is it worldliness in your speech, talking too much about movies and music and TV? Cut it out and talk about edifying things. Maybe it's just laziness. You're just lazy and you're not in the word and you're not in uh, prayer. You're not in meditation. You're not reading good wholesome things. Your life and your time and your energy is filled with lawful things maybe. But it's so unbalanced, it's affecting your faith. Cut it out. Fourthly, cut it out urgently. Here's the motivation. Heaven or hell, your choice. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. He's speaking to Peter John here. He's speaking to Matthew. He's speaking to the elect. But it's the professing church. It's professing believers. And remember, gospel threatenings, they're a means of grace. Because there's a cost here to giving things up. There's a cost to things cutting off your hands and plucking out your eyes. There's a cost to your time and your energy and what you're doing in life. And if you have to cut it out or pluck it out, it might cost you something. And you might think, oh, do I really want to do that? Quite simply, life or death. Think of a man or a woman who has the diseased leg. And the doctor's trying to heal it and do all they can, but that's it, they can't do anything. And they come to, I'm so sorry, but if we don't cut off that leg, you're dead. And it's going to cost you, there's heartache, there's pain, there's tears, but at the end of the day, life or death. And you choose life because it's worth it. There was a film out I think 10 years ago or so called 127 Hours. Never watched it. No idea what it's like. But I remember watching an interview because it was based on a true story where a man who was a mountaineer and would go around canyons over America and he was going to Utah over the canyons and he fell down one and his arm got stuck under a massive boulder and he couldn't get himself free. He was in that canyon for five days and he couldn't get free. But he had a blunt pocket knife. And he had to think life or death. He cut off his arm with that blunt pocket knife. He climbed down the canyon 64 more feet to get to the bottom. And I think he walked like 10 miles to the nearest path and survived. And so Christ is saying, eternal life, kingdom of God, presence of the Lord and Saviour, the unsearchable riches, the glories, the, the joy, the righteousness, the peace of the kingdom of God. Oh hell, the place where the fire is not quenched, the place where the worm does not die. And therefore with all urgency, don't mess around. Don't play games. Don't be tolerant. Don't just wink at it. Cut it off. But then secondly, season our life with the salt of peace. Verse 49. For everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. This is an extremely difficult verse. There is so much disagreement to this verse. Who's the everyone? Believer? Non-believer? Visible church? What does it mean to be salted with fire? There are two things that everyone does agree on. Salt means to preserve and purify. Purify. Second thing everyone agrees on this is an allusion to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, Every oblation, sacrifice, of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. All thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Okay? So in the Old Testament, when they had sacrifices, they seasoned the sacrifices with salt, which again, there's general agreement, salt of the covenant, God's pure, preserving covenant. But that's where the agreement ends. And there are well, well over a dozen orthodox interpretations of verse 12. Some say it's speaking of judgment. Everyone is connected for to everyone who is going to hell. Therefore, everyone will not be seasoned with salt in hell. They'll be seasoned with fire, which will preserve them in hell, which means you'll have everlasting damnation in hell. Others say no. It is speaking generally to everyone that the fire... Is speaking of fiery trials, like 1 Peter chapter 1. And through the fire of trials, it will be revealed whether we sin the sin of offense or not. Others say no. It's to do with living a sacrificial life to God. Like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We are to have our bodies as a living sacrifice serving God. And there's a plethora of more. And I don't know exactly what one is true. Could it be this, and I'm not saying it is, I think it is, but I'm not 100% sure. Could it be the first part of 49 is one thing and the second part is a different thing? Could it be 49A is speaking about for connection, everyone who is offending and experiencing the unquenchable fire will be salted or preserved with fire in hell. And, not a continuing and, but a discontinuing and, every sacrifice, therefore our obedience to God, is to be seasoned with salt. That makes sense. Could be that. I lean towards that, but I very much need more light on that. But at least for now, that's how I do interpret it. But everyone pretty much agrees in verse 50. That's not complicated at all. Where it says, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So there's agreement in this. Salt is that purifying preservative which is good. If a professing Christian does not have salt, if their life is not a purifying preservation of godliness and good works, there is no use for it. It should be trampled on and discarded and it's useless. Therefore, have salt in yourselves and live in peace one with another. And this is the same language of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount where he says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth? So you're a purifying preservation and good works upon earth. But if a salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. So Christians have salt, they should live godly lives, and if they don't live salty lives, it's useless and worthless and to be cast out. And therefore you disciples. To not live the life of sinning the brethren, you live salt by living peaceably one with another. I don't think I read a commentary to disagree with that. But that's the key here. Peace one with another. How will you not commit this sin? It's not merely killing the sin in you. It's positively live with peace one with another. And when you read Romans chapter 14 speaking about offending the brethren, what does it say we should do? Romans 14:19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for faith, peace. So exact same teaching Romans 14 and Matthew 9:50. So how are you going to overcome the sin of offending the brethren? Live in peace one with another. Peace in the Bible was not how we use peace. We use peace, the absence of war. That's included in the biblical shalom, but shalom is much more than that. Peace means wholeness, health, completeness. It's a positive, prospering relationship. That's why, if you read Psalm 72, the same word for peace, shalom, is translated prosper, prosper. If you get out a concordance and look at the word shalom and look at it all the times and how it's translated, so many times it's used for health or prospering. Because peace between me and God is not merely the absence of his wrath. It's a prosperous, positive, healthy, wholesome relationship. And so, between me and you, our peace is not merely the absence of a war, but a prosperous, wholesome, healthy relationship. So, how does this apply to us? Well, we can talk about when we do offend another Christian, what do we do? We go to them, we confess it, and there's full forgiveness one to another. And reconciliation that 's Matthew five, if someone has an offense against you, put your gift down, go be reconciled because if you don't, there's always going to be death peace. someone's conscience could be hurt. And remember second, Chronic, uh, S- second Corinthians uh, uh, is it chapter one or chapter two? chapter two, verse seven. If your brother or sister sins against you, don't just say you're forgiven. Make sure they don't wallow in sorrow. Go give them the full comfort and let them know without a shadow of a doubt they're fully forgiven. Because I think you know and I know what it means to say you've fallen out with someone who's been in disagreement and you say you're forgiven. There's that tension. There's that, did he really forgive me? But her tone, did she really forgive me? No, 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 no. Season your forgiveness with salt. Put an arm over them. See, I love you, full forgiveness, we're fully reconciled. Or oh, truth. There are times in life you have to tell the truth to someone. If you tell the truth in a careless manner, without love, in the wrong season, it could be the sin of offending the brethren. But if you come with the truth with careful words in love at the right time, You're not offending the brethren, even if they get upset by it. And our speech, remember this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but let everything be done edifying. Have peace one with another. Is this the right time to bring this up or not? Will this edify or not? Am I bringing this up just for the contrary and the polemic and the banter, so called? Or am I doing this to edify the brethren? The words that I'm using, are they appropriate? The tone in which I am speaking, is it appropriate? Use wisdom when you speak and if you say something in the wrong tone or the words then do what we did in step one have peace one with another go back oh I'm sorry I didn't realise my tone and my words I could have phrased it better Uh, I shouldn't have said that that could be taken the wrong way oh I did say it that way but, but I completely forgive you what other ways can we know to have peace with another? Romans chapter 12 to 15 is just verse, verse after verse of applying this. And I would recommend that you go home this week and you read and meditate on Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 15 and you'll see multitudes of practical applications of how to live in peace with one another and not offend the brethren. But let's just glean a few practical things. Romans 12 verse 14. Sorry, Romans 12 verse 3, sorry. I say through the grace given unto me to every man there's among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according to God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And then verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. So if you act and speak in a selfish, arrogant way that's going to put down other people or harm their faith, you're committing the sin of offense. But if you apply this to your life and you esteem others before you, If you um, prefer others to yourself, that will be an act of humiliation, pleasing to God, and you are in the right attitude of keeping the peace. Unlike the disciples when they were arguing, who is the greatest among us? Or John, well, we're of the twelve, you're not, therefore stop casting out demons. But if they have humility and prefer one to another, they would receive another brother or sister. Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love your brother and you will not be a stumbling block. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So if you love and act in love towards your brother and sister, what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything according to your own power to hurt them, are you? Or to do them ill? Or to hurt their conscience? Or to lead them astray? So fill your heart with the love of the brethren and endeavour by the grace of God to love every brother and sister, to give your life for them, to do them good. Chapter 14. Verse 1, him that is weak in the faith receive, but not to doubtful disputations. What's the content of your discussion? Is it doubtful disputations, arguments and debates and polemics and controversies? There is a time to bring up subjects that you care about and they're important or you're learning and growing in that in and of themselves are good before God, but sadly, because in the church there's sin and misunderstanding, there may be controversy. It could be exclusive psalmity. It could be head coverings. It could be baptism. Good subjects that come from the Bible. It could be speaking about the preservation of Scripture. Good biblical subjects in the right time and place, are to be preached and discussed. But in the wrong time, it could hurt people's faith. It's not going to edify. It's going to hurt them. So be wise. Have faithful, edifying disputations, not doubting disputations in the presence of others that may cause them to fall into sin or to hurt their faith. Chapter 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now you could rip this right of context and your brother or sister is falling into sin and you do nothing because you're not allowed to judge. That's not what he's saying. You can go see Paul in chapter 6 and if you're spiritual, And a brother or sister is either in sin or stumbling in the faith. You in love are to come and restore them. And part of that restoration might be truth. With careful words, brother or sister, you're falling into sin and doing that which is wrong. So he's not saying you can't do that. But he's saying when you're judging someone to something that might be not sinful. But they think it's wrong and Christians shouldn't do it. Then don't come and judge them. That's not to say there's not a time and a place to come and say to someone by the way it's lawful for a Christian to do that. But at the end of the day if a brother or sister doesn't think Christians should do it and they're convinced in their conscience that it's wrong and sinful and the thing in of itself is not going to cause them to be in or outside the kingdom of God the context here in Romans 14 such as eating food or drinking things then don't go and hurt their conscience. How dare you? How dare I? Be very sensitive and tender to your brother and sister's conscience and just let it go. Now, they're weak in faith, not strong. And hopefully through the public preaching of God's word and Bible studies and theology, their weak faith that thinks something's wrong but is actually not wrong might grow and one day they'll have strong faith and, and it's fine. But when they're in the state of a weak faith, Don't go judging them to condemn them and bring them a stumbling block. Love them. And Paul says, you know if I've got a brother who doesn't eat meat, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 13, do you know what I will do for that brother? I'll never eat meat again. That's love. It's the love I need. It's the love I need to grow in. verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Maybe there's things in your life you need to abstain from. In all of life or in the presence of another brother or sister. Don't flaunt your rights and privileges. You do have the right to do it. You do, before God, not man. But you doing it might hurt their faith. Therefore, in love, withhold your rights and abstain for the sake of not offending the brethren. And see, when we do this, we're at peace one with another. Prosperous, wholesome, healthy relationships. And that is salt on the earth. Because the world doesn't do this. The world's selfish, individualistic, my right, I deserve to do it, no matter who disagrees or is hurt by it. But not the church. Not the church. And when we do this, the brother does not, is not led into sin, and the sister is not weakened in her faith. Christ is pleased because as we not offend the brother but love them, we love Christ also. And through this, we enter into life, the eternal kingdom of God. So let us all not commit the sin of offending the brethren. Let us repent and kill our sins by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and having no provision for the flesh. Let us pray. Our God, we are thankful that though there are threatenings and warnings, there is so much gospel encouragements and practical uses. Father, we need wisdom. But we are thankful that thy word saith, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and upbraideth not. And we are thankful we have books in the Bible full of wisdom, that if we learn, study, and apply. By the fear of the Lord, we shall be wise. Lord, we pray that not one of us would be the stumbling block of faith or the snare to sin. Help us to live godly, loving, consistent lives. Help us to be quick to be reconciled, and help us to love one another. In the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.